Hello and welcome to City State Cast, where I aim to break down big issues and ideas into more digestible bits. I'm your host, Miguel Irene. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode. Today I want to talk about an issue that's near and dear to my heart, constitutionalism. As an American growing up in Washington, D.C., I was immersed in a system that venerated the Constitution's framers as deities. And I mean this literally, there's a mural of the founders in the Capitol Rotunda that is supposed to be evocative of Olympian gods. The Lincoln Memorial is supposed to be inspired by the Athenian Acropolis, and the Jefferson Memorial is likewise inspired by a host of Grecian temples. This can make constitutional discussions really difficult, since gods don't make mistakes, and suggesting otherwise is a huge taboo in American political culture. The problem is that public policy is a lot more of a technology than it is a religious dogma. And running with that metaphor, if the US is an iPhone, then we're still running on iOS 2. And before we can start using all the cool new apps that everyone else has, we really need to sit down and run a lot of updates. So without further ado, I present Episode 1, Firmware Update. Having a constitution in the first place can seem like a very basic idea, but in terms of the development of the technology that is governance, it's actually really new and pretty revolutionary. It's sort of like getting the touchscreen before you could get the iPhone. Now, all of this really comes down to something called social contract theory. It was really first developed by a guy named Thomas Hobbes writing in the English Civil Wars in the 17th century, and he wrote a book called The Leviathan. This is where the phrase, a man is a wolf to every other man, comes from. The idea is that basically without having a state, if you were just to take a bunch of people and drop them into the middle of nowhere without any conception that they should be cooperating, then basically every person is going to be caught up in the general fear that the person next door is going to kill them. So instead of fighting, they get together and they create the state, a civil society, or what Thomas Hobbes refers to as a leviathan. This enforces internal laws like don't steal my stuff and don't murder me, and defends against external threats so that you don't need to be worried about your very distant neighbors either. Now, the founders took from Hobbes and from other people, uh, most importantly John Locke and the Baron of Montesquieu, the general idea that we should have a basic set of rules that would outline how, not just as individuals, but as existent political bodies, the 13 colonies would be relating to each other. And as such, they basically created a bunch of compromises. There are a lot of myths wrapped up in the foundation of the Republic. But if you just want to completely remove all the bullshit, you'll find that our first constitution, the iOS 1 of the United States, was drafted in 1777 and it wasn't ratified until 1781. This was a piece of software that was created basically to make sure that the Continental Coalition, the 13 colonies, would be able to keep their shit together long enough to prosecute the war against the British. 
the entire thing was essentially a compromise. It was giving all the power to the state governments and only the bare minimum and hardly even that to the central government that was being created to administer the war effort. In 1783, with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, we started to realize that this new system wasn't really going to hold up. The British, the French, the Spanish, they all had interests in what was formerly the United Colonies and now the new United States, and they all were a lot more sophisticated and were capable of maneuvering individual members of state governments in such a way that was contradictory to the interests of the new union that was created. The United States puttered along for quite some time under this really, really loose confederation, and it wasn't until the framers got together in 1787 and put together the Constitution of 1787 that we got something approaching a central government. There are really a lot of reasons why things sort of played out this way. By the time that you actually got to the American Revolution and then the American War for Independence, the 13 colonies that would make up the new United States really had already developed their own specific social hierarchies, political cultures, and economies completely separate from each other. Now, very generally, there were farmers and artisans and mechanics in all the different colonies that would support self-rule but when they thought of self-rule, what they were thinking about was trying to get the vote for themselves, basically breaking down the petty privileges of the either merchant class or the uh, landowning class, and really fundamentally just limiting the power of the wealthy to control their day-to-day -day lives. Now, the wealthy really constitute a large group of people in the early Republican period. These are people who are lawyers, shopkeepers, merchants, but most importantly, the landed gentry that would control most of the politics of the early Republican period. Their interests ran completely counter to the interests of the lower classes. For example, when the Articles of Confederation were actually drafted and ratified, that document did very little to abolish the local feudalism, remove the petty privileges of the landed aristocracy or guild systems, and really only acted to further entrench the powers of local elites. So as we get into the post-war period, it becomes very clear that without the pressure of being shot in the face for treason, that the Articles of Confederation really didn't have a way of forcing the individual states to cooperate with each other and work in the general interest of the combined states rather than the individual interests of particular states. So our illustrious framers get together in Philadelphia in 1787 and decide that they're basically going to completely ignore everything about the Artists' Confederation. They're going to create something completely new. Now, just like when they created the Artists' Confederation, again, they're not interested in creating a democratic system that was going to empower everyone within the United States to participate in government, but rather they're trying to put together a new document with the same basic compromises that were going to hold together this new country 
while still creating a central government that could enforce and protect the rules that it was trying to establish. So everything about the Constitutional Convention was a secret at the time. These people did not want to have their deliberations made public so that there was a public debate about what sort of constitution we should get, but instead they wanted to, at the end of the convention, present a fait accompli to the nation and say either we go with this new document that might work or the old document that definitely will not work. And what's interesting about this was that that's completely illegal under the Articles of Confederation. You had to have complete unanimity to be able to enact any new constitution, but that of course was going to be completely impossible, so the founders just ignored the original document. The new document that they created, like the old one, entrenched the power of local elites, but managed to force a little bit of cooperation across the states. They limited the franchise to only propertyed free men over the age of 25. They split the legislature between a House of Commons, what they were going to call the representatives that elected every two years, and a House of Lords, what they were going to call the Senate, that was going to be elected every six years. Now, the representative house was basically created to make sure that large states like New York or Virginia would be able to have their fair share of power, that the populations of those states would be represented in the new legislature. However, the new House of Lords, what we were going to call the Senate, was created so that the smaller states wouldn't be swamped by the larger states that could otherwise monopolize power. The most notorious compromise of the Constitutional Convention is something we remember as the Three-Fifths Compromise. This is the clause that said that slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of determining the number of representatives a state had in the House of Representatives. This meant that slave states could count their slaves when it came to giving themselves power in the new, uh, new Congress, but they still didn't have to give them any sort of rights. Now, not on the same level as denying somebody their basic dignity and human rights, the second most notorious compromise of the Constitution of 1787 was the fact that senators in the new House of Lords would be appointed by state legislatures rather than through any sort of direct election. That meant to have a say in the Senate, which was going to be a more long-term deliberative body, you had to be rich enough to first run for a state legislature that before your will would ever actually be represented in the upper house. Now, the third thing that I like to include here, but I don't know that you'd actually get to call it a compromise since everyone was sort of good with it, uh, is the Second Amendment. Now, the Second Amendment was included not to include individual gun rights. That only became a thing in 2008 with DC versus Heller. But it was included because the founders wanted to create militias that were controlled by the states that would act as a check against the power of a central government that might theoretically turn tyrannical. But this also had the double effect of also guaranteeing that local elites had a right to domestic armed intervention, that they could then use that monopoly on violence to tamp down on any sort of class violence like the Whiskey Rebellion, or to keep any, I don't know, slave populations in line. 
Another hugely anti-democratic compromise that was included in the Constitution of 1787 was the Electoral College. This was created to actually elect the presidents, not the popular vote, which was really meant as sort of an advisory function, but rather the Electoral College itself, which would get together and decide who should be president. They might look at what their state decided to vote for and say, oh, this is a good idea, but they could also say, no, that's a bad idea, I'm voting for somebody else. Another smaller but no less important anti-democratic measure that was included in this constitution was the fact that legislative districts were going to be left up to the states to draw without any real reference to how the people in those legislative districts were supposed to be represented by those districts. This is all to point out that while there has been some democratic tinker around the edges of the document, our constitution was expressly meant to create an oligarchic republic. When people compare the United States to Rome, that's on purpose. That's, that was the model by which we were trying to create a new system. We weren't really trying to create a democracy that the Athenians would recognize. We were really trying to recreate the Roman system without the pitfalls of the Roman Republican system. So over the years, we've been reforming this oligarchic constitution, but because we've never actually replaced it with something fundamentally democratic, we've essentially created a system whereby a minority of voters can elect a president, whereby states can redraw legislative districts to abrogate the will of voters in opposing parties, where people living in less populous states have functionally more power than people living in more populated areas. And this all, at the end of the day, comes down to the idea that public policy, law, constitutionalism, again, is more technology than is art. We know how to make things more democratic. We know how to improve material outcomes for our population. We only have to choose to go about making those changes. One of the most important things we can do in creating a more democratic system is completely abolish the Senate. Get rid of it entirely. It's not necessary. We do not need a House of Lords. Instead, we'll have a unicameral legislature, only the House of Representatives. You can call it the Senate if you really like the name, but only the one House. Now, we also need to get rid of legislative districts. There is too much temptation on both sides for legislative districts to be drawn up in such a way that legislatures choose their voters rather than voters choosing the legislatures. So let's move entirely to a proportional vote system. Another major thing that we can do to make sure that we are living in a more democratic state is to require automatic voter registration. The moment that one turns of age to vote is the moment that one is registered to vote. Anything less than that allows for situations where elected officials or appointed officials can maneuver the electorate in such a way as to influence votes. This is not to say that they will always be able to do so to control outcomes of elections, but when somebody is elected to office, there comes with it the impression of a mandate. If someone squeaks into office with a 51% margin, that is not quite the same thing as that person being elected with a 75%, 80%, 90% majority. It's crucially important that we know exactly how many people 
voted for a particular person so that we can know the full degree of support for their leadership. We also really need to consider how we treat immigrants of any standing in our country. There is a remarkably long process in which someone who has legally come into the country can move from a resident alien to a permanent resident and then into a citizen. And while we can debate the value of this, while they are unable to vote, there are millions of people that are subject to American law with literally no capacity to influence that law that they are under, which goes against the idea that we are a representative democracy. Now, we, again, we can debate the concept of citizenship and immigration as much as you might want, but at the end of the day, if we are in a scenario whereby we are demonizing immigrants, those same immigrants, if they've been here for any reasonable period of time, should have some say in the world they live in. So I would suggest that one year's residency should entitle an immigrant to voting in their municipal elections. That two years residency should entitle that same immigrant to vote in the state elections. And after four years of residency, they should be able to vote in federal elections. Now, something that we can take from parliamentary systems to make a more democratic system is the concept of votes of no confidence. Now, what that means is that if a government does something that is particularly heinous and thus unpopular with the electorate, or the government encounters a scenario or a crisis that it's simply incapable of dealing with, that the legislature should be able to say, we do not believe that this government should be in power anymore, and thus causing a new election to occur. Now, this is absolutely critical, because the current system is based off the idea that no law is better than bad law. However, in modernity, we have proven that no, actually at a certain point, no law can be in and of itself bad law. It allows bad actors to continue on a bad path. We need to have a way of influence events as they occur. So another thing that we can take from parliamentary systems is the concept of a question period. This is when a member of the executive, ideally the chief executive, but sometimes just simply representative of them, is going to appear before opposition parties to answer questions. And I would actually suggest that we should take it even a step further and that everyone involved, the people asking the question and the people answering the question, should be under oath and thus subject to the penalty of perjury so that there is no way for our elected officials to lie to the public and get away with it. Now, these are some of my favorite ideas for some democratic updates to our current constitutional operating system. And in, you know, this is not even going into campaign finance or how our judiciary works. And to be fair, you don't need to actually enact what I'm suggesting. This is my opinion. I have a lot of reasons for them, but they are fundamentally just ideas that I have. And, you know, maybe I'm going to convince you of them, but maybe not. That's the whole point of a democracy is us convincing each other. Now, there is a lot of pessimism when it comes to the idea of change in America. And to be fair, changes at the constitutional level 
are logistically rather difficult. They require huge majorities in a majority of legislatures to be able to enact them. But the thing is, is that in a system that awards power in accordance to the popular will, by definition, all we have to do is build a majority support for a more democratic system and then vote on it a bunch of times. Then we have it. And I know that when I use the word just there, that sounds rather flippant. But sincerely, if you look at the historical record, we don't have to get a bunch of guns and pitchforks and torches together and kill off huge portions of the population in civil war. We do not need to convince some sort of priestly caste that the gods favor these new changes in our society. We really just have to all come to an agreement as to what our change should be and then say, we're doing this and just show up. It is fundamentally the easiest time in history to be able to enact these kinds of changes. But my question for you, if you are someone who believes that change is desperately necessary like I do, but at the same time that they are fundamentally impossible, not that you know it's difficult, but that it cannot be done, then I really have only one question for you, and that is, at what point do you engage in violent revolution? And that's all for this episode of City State Cast. I'm your host, Miguel Irene. Thank you for listening. <laughs>